Welcome to the Monsters of Fantasy. This was written, produced, recorded, and edited by me, Sean McCarter. Monsters of Fantasy is a production in which I will explore the truly horrific side of the fantasy world known as Dungeons and Dragons. There are content warnings in the show notes below. Episode 14 The Marezi. So, how does it work? Well, it should actually be working now. See, uh, see that rune? Oh. It's glowing slightly. Uh, what does that mean? Actually, I haven't a clue. I didn't put it there. It looks strange. Doesn't all magic? No. Sorry I couldn't help you with your problem. I don't really understand what you mean. Bahamut is and always has been Bahamut. Sure, he may shed his mighty dragon form to take on the guise of a human, but he is always a mighty dragon. No, I just I came across that stuff and I just thought you might be able to provide some insight. So, this is your office? I didn't think you'd stop adventuring and just sit around books all day. Are you having fun at least? Is the pay good? The first time we met at Old Mike's Tavern, I was deep in a book. And if I'm not mistaken, I was in the middle of writing that story of my old captain. With the Krakens and... The Adventures of Captain Orangebeard. Yeah, that one. That wasn't a very good name for the series. No wonder nothing ever sold. Well, it shouldn't be a surprise to you. I've always loved to read and study... The adventures of all this world can offer. This job is really interesting. I'm finding more in here than any of the libraries we've ever been to. So what? Is it just a bunch of stories taken from adventurers? And that's how you all study these monsters? Well, it's hard to put. I don't really do a lot of the studying. I do help where I can. I've been tasked with managing this side of it, the... Organization and cataloging bits. We have over a hundred years worth of studies done on these creatures, though, so I know we've had more help in studying these monsters in the past. Though, I don't think any live expeditions into these monsters has taken place in quite some time. None of the current staff, aside from Daisy, has ever mentioned being attacked while out in the field. But why? Aren't there bestiaries and studies on these things? I mean, really, how much more could be here than, say, in Voron's library? It's different. Do you actually mind if I try casting a spell on you? Like what? Why are you looking at me like that? I just want to see if I can get a story from you is all. Mmm, sure. What should I talk about? I don't know. Just tell me a story about a monster you've encountered. How... how do I start? I don't know. Actually, I don't even know how this works. This is my first time. Your first time? What, is this some kind of experimental spell? Last time someone tried this, Chandra almost blew off my Arithras, arm. Arithras, would you just... Would you kindly tell me a story about the time we fought Amoreji? Well, 
you were there. Actually, that was back when it was the three of us, huh? Me, you, and Charles. We were on our way to Shroudfrost and had to get through the Raven's Forest. Or rather, that's how simple and easy Sylvain made it seem. We were tasked officially with finding out more information on where to find the Staff of Magi, but you know as well as I do that I had other business. Going up north to get that stupid staff for Charles was only a convenience in our quest to get back Sindala and Vindala. But for some reason you didn't ask about the time we fought and almost killed a demon prince in order to save your ex-girlfriend and her sister. No, you asked about that wretched little girl. We were looking to stop and get some warmer clothes before we entered the Raven's Forest. Specifically, we were about to pay some poor farmer more gold than they could say no to for their winter wear. It was fortunate this just so happened to be the one we walked up to. The mass of farmlands near the southern border started to blend together. This just happened to be the nearest one we saw. I didn't really think about it before I just now realized that the land out there is nicely fertilized on account of the mass of dead that were once piled there. It may not be common knowledge, but it's no surprise that the Raven's Forest is the exact location of humanity's last stand against the demons 3,000 years ago. And now the farmers of Waram were supplying thousands of humans and elves alike with the nutrients reaped from the poor souls lost to the abyss. Too bad that came at the expense of the forest. We approached the house, a broad, well-built log cabin. From the road in the cornfield, I could see the door was opened and a bit of firelight was reflecting off the glass from the outside. Torchlight poured from one of the upstairs windows. I tried to look for shadows moving against the flames, but I couldn't make out anything. Walking up to the door, it wasn't apparent that anything was wrong at the time, but quickly we realized as we called out into the still night that no one was home. We were a heroic and curious bunch. So at the first signs of a mystery, or something being wrong, we decided to allow ourselves into their home. The first thing that was apparent was that the family had been eating dinner. They had a roaring fireplace going in the family's sitting area, except the small straw-stuffed sofa they had was toppled over as if someone were in a hurry when they got up. A small wooden table was haphazardly leaning against the wall. Broken plates and scattered food were sprawled out around it. I went over to see if the food was still warm when Charles shouted out that he found a trail of blood. Inside their small kitchen that led to the back of the cabin, we saw that something had broken in through the window. Glass was shattered all over the floor. Around the jagged pieces, I saw ripped and blood-soaked cloth. The contents of this room were just as chaotic as the previous one. The blood trail obviously led out to their back field, but you decided to check on the rest of the house for any survivors. Charles and I instead went out and followed the trail. I'll save you on the gruesome details, because you were there. But had you not shouted from the second floor that a little girl had probably escaped, I would have thought she were down there too. While she locked herself in the room upstairs long enough to climb out and run away, the rest of the family wasn't so lucky. Charles asked me to cast my light spell. We had passed all forms of secrecy, and we didn't care who or what saw us. So I casted a guiding light on my shield. In hindsight, I regret doing so. The nearest corpse was the father's. 
I could only tell it was the father because we later found the lady of the house, or rather the pieces that made up the lady of the house, about thirty or so feet from them. You could tell they ran into a maze in an attempt to lose the creatures while they made a sprint for the barn. It was this small but sturdy-looking red building about two hundred feet from the house. You could follow the trail each of the people took and then died in. Whatever it was that attacked them did so haphazardly. You could see the neat, straight lines of the three family members, and then a singular, chaotic one that zigzagged, claiming each of its victims. The last we found was the boy. It seems that the parents had bought him enough time to make it to the barn where he tried to fight off whatever it was with the shovel. He didn't stand a chance, though. When we heard you shouting from the house that there might be a girl who ran, and still could be alive, we started looking for her. Shortly after this, we heard a rustling in the cornfield, so Charles and I started running after it. We were shouting and calling out to her, but nothing was responding. The cornfield had become dead silent. I heard the rapid crumbling of dead leaves too late as a giant scarecrow came out to attack Charles. It clawed him across the face, and then in the dim light that came from my shield, three more stood up around us. Then we were heroically saved by some lying bitch of an elf. I don't know, maybe I'm being a bit petty. Her and her brother claimed she was being controlled, but despite her acts of fleeting bravery, she tried sacrificing us all to her god. Sistana was her name, a youthful elvish ranger who just so happened to be a cleric of death. I remember thinking that her midnight attire and raven-feathered pauldrons were a bit overkill, but in general, being a deaf cleric was quite normal. I think I figured it was a cultural shock. Hell, I'd only been out of Rakir for a couple months at the time. Sisana just so happened to make it in the nick of time with her enchanted bow, easily reducing the measly piles of straw to ash. Considering she just saved us, we didn't really question when she offered us a place to stay for the night, and for an escort through the forest. There were even rumors in my country about the horrible monsters that can be found in the raven's forest. Almost no one ever goes through it, and even the bravest of adventurers would rather spend months sailing around it and walking through the tundra, just to not step foot in the forest. On the other hand, it wasn't a complete mystery either. I knew people that have, and can, travel through it. We were tailing such people at the time anyways, and we could use any help and escort we needed. How was I supposed to know that she was going to try and sacrifice us? And don't you say that we should have seen it coming because she was a deaf cleric? I know normal worshippers of the Raven Queen. The Raven Queen is a peaceful god of death. Although the forest is named after her, the forest nor that elf is peaceful. The humans named it the Raven's Forest because of all the necromantic and demonic evil that rests in its soul. It should be called the Orcus's Forest. That would be more fitting for it. I know we never proved it, but I'm sure that the deaf cleric of the Raven Queen was just a secret worshipper to Orcus. That, or she had gone completely mad living on the edge of the forest. That should have been our first hint, right? To not engage with her? That she lived in a treehouse that was pretty much in the evil forest everyone was telling us about? But we didn't. We spent the night there and even went as far to make a nice breakfast in the morning before we set out. I remember her eating her breakfast rather rapidly, almost in a hurried, rushing state. 
I would have thought it nerves, maybe about going into the raven's forest. She kept droning on and on about how we had very little daylight to get there, and what I thought was panicked rushing, I realized now was gleeful anticipation. She had found a cleric to sacrifice and just couldn't wait to please her god. She tricked us, obviously, intent on sacrificing us to the forest like her many victims before. But again, for some reason, you didn't ask about the monster she summoned to kill us. What was it she called it? The cadaver collector. The thing that killed Charles and wasted our only resurrection spell at the time. No, you asked about the monstrosity that attacked me before we had already lost our precious guide into the forest. Admittedly, we didn't ever actually have a guide. We'd been blindly following Sistana the entire day, and none of us knew exactly where we were. Charles was helpful with always knowing which way was north. He also sent out a few dim globules of light so we could see. I know you always forget about those small things, but for me and Charles, we couldn't see in the dark. That dreadful forest was terrifying the moment we stepped in. It seemed the tall, winding oak trees were now suffocating us. I haven't even learned what an ent was, but I still felt like the forest was alive, or rather, undead. There were numerous skeletal remains we came across, mummified corpses in the nooks of hollowed-out trees. I remember stopping to rest, and there tangled up beneath the roots of a tree was a full skeleton clad in plate mail. We kept going about an hour longer into the night, trying to find a place to sleep that wasn't infested with the undead. I heard a shouting plea that was coming from the darkness of the forest. It sounded like a little girl. No, it was the shouts of a little girl. Immediately my mind panicked to the blood-stained farmhouse. I had long thought she had died to the forest like the unfortunate dead we came across. But when I heard that little girl cry, I knew that she somehow got away. I asked Charles to go check it out with Fuse. There was some debate about the squirrel going, if I recall, but I was not losing another argument to him at the time, and we set him out to investigate the ominous woods. Now, that was pretty dumb of us, honestly. The mere blind leading the blind. We can't blame the poor squirrel, though. He saw the same little girl wearing a tattered pair of overalls we would see shortly. She had mud caked in her blonde hair, and her undershirt was spotted over with blood. She was shivering and her feet were bare. It looked as if she had been running through the forest without rest. As soon as Charles told me this, I was running to her. The little girl was scared the second she saw me and screamed off behind a nearby tree. Charles was at least watching through Fuse, but you, Kez. You and Sistana let me go after her by myself. I know, I know, you were cautious at least a little bit about the situation. I, on the other hand, have to help people. Unlike you all, I have a heart, and if there was a chance I could save the little girl. I slowly walked up to her, cowering behind the tree. She had such soft, round eyes, and almost the beauty of an elf. It was just covered and matted by the mud and twigs that were caught in her hair. I lowered my voice and spoke softly to her. I told her, in common, that I was her friend that I may be a big, scary dragonborn, but I am her friend. I held out my holy symbol in front of me and pointed to it like it would calm her down or something. 
Surely it worked, because as I inched closer, the sobs stopped, and she revealed more of herself from the trunk of the tree. Hesitantly, she stretched out a thin, malnourished arm and allowed me to hold her hand. I bent down close to her face to talk to her. She was a bit shy at first, squinting and not answering, but slowly she spoke to me. In a sweet, innocent voice, she told me about how some horrible creature burst into her home and chased her into the forest. I gave her Fuse and told him to comfort her. She hesitantly took the familiar and let Fuse nuzzle up to her. I convinced her to come back to the group with me, that we would be able to keep her safe. We were walking back when I heard a small squeak erupt from Fuse, only to look down and see a puff of arcane dust floating from the girl. I was in the middle of calmly telling her it's okay, thinking Charles simply dismissed him. I then heard Sparks scream. Up until that point in the trip, Charles had done well to not let Sparks take control. Charles had a severe and unfortunate case of disassociative identity disorder. I don't think he was ever treated by medical professionals, though, because the king and his archmages wanted Charles because he came with Sparks, an almost out-of-control pyromaniac who doesn't care about his own safety for the sake of power. I tugged on the little girl, thinking something happened back with the others, but she wouldn't budge. We were still separated, and in the night I could barely see anything past a few feet. I looked down to the girl to tell her we had to move, but the girl just looked up at me and started smiling. The corners of her lips started stretching inhumanly to the side of her face. The thin skin that was her mouth started to peel apart, revealing a row of jagged, curved teeth. They were so long and sharp, I thought it was impossible they could fit in the little girl's mouth. As if it were answering me, a chunk of the little girl's eyeball fell off. A blue iris chipped away like paint to reveal a glowing yellow eye. I could see gray scaly flesh now at the edges of her cheekbone. The little girl spoke in my mind, but it was broken elvish. I couldn't really put it together, but it sounded like something about not tasting a dragonborn in a while and leaped up biting me with his angler-like jaws. I felt flesh rip away from my neck as I watched the creature start to swallow a chunk. I pushed her back with my shield and tried bashing it with my mace. It was still wearing the mask of the little girl, so maybe subconsciously I was holding back, but I thought I gave it all I could, only to have it bounce off of her skull, seemingly unaffecting its true skin underneath. It let out a low chuckle and clawed me in retaliation, catching me just under the shield. As soon as it connected, I felt sharp claws, yes, but it felt as if it injected me with something. I looked down and saw black ichor running up my veins. I tried shouting out to it, but I felt all my muscles and joints closing up. Rapidly, my throat was clenched and I could not speak. The creature rose up, stretching the little girl's skin from its own... It had gray pale skin stretched tight across its body. It used its long thin claws to peel away its cocoon. The creature smiled, and then in draconic, This meat is delicious. 
I must have more. It was now towering above me, but my muscles betrayed me. My legs were frozen still as it opened escaping maw. That's when sparks showed up. I knew because I saw a bead of flame starting to form in the center of its chest. I tried to clench my eyes closed, but even my eyelids wouldn't close. A second later, the creature was engulfed in a blazing inferno. Sparks called it immolation. Charles referred to it as his strongest offensive spell, at least before we got the staff. But it was identified by the sheer intensity of heat focused on one creature. Flames writhed all around it. I saw a blackened outline with melting fat and skin falling off of it. It sounded as if it was screaming in pain, but I still saw a twisted smile in the inferno. It wasn't screaming, but laughing. The flames dropped from its body. It had a few scorch marks on its skin, but it seemed unaffected. Like a creature from hell, it leaped, flames falling off of it, at sparks who had run up on it. Luckily, Sparks was more than alert, and casted a spell creating an arcane barrier between the two. The creature bounced off hopelessly, seemingly caught off guard. It twisted its demonic face around as if it was searching for something. Then, in what I'm guessing was abyssal, it started talking at one of the corpses. Obviously, I didn't understand what it was saying, but it was like it was shouting orders. I tried moving, but my body still wasn't responding. I could see, though, that the scales on my arm where the creature had clawed me had all dropped away, revealing dead, gray skin, as if it were rapidly decaying. Sparks got up to his feet to face off against the monster, but he was not the only one getting to his feet. From underneath the ground, this bald, ghoulish-looking creature clawed its way to the surface. Unable to move or speak, I just watched as the other two made their way to kill Sparks. That's when you and Sistana showed up. And like you know, with the four of us there, we were able to quickly kill the thing. It helped that right as you two came, I was able to shrug off whatever it used to paralyze me. After I could move, I felt capable and spry as ever. I casted spiritual guardians, Sparks, hold person, and you tried insulting it to death. It worked, though. Notice I left out Sistana. I remember her being there and shooting her bow, but I think at that point she was willing to let us die in the forest. Either way, with or without her help, we took that shape-changing monster down, and we were ready to finally try and sleep for the night. Or so I thought. I first noticed it while I was trying to tell you all how the fight started. I noticed that no one was listening to my words. You were all staring at my face. I reached up and felt my neck where the monster had bitten me. And similar to my arm, I didn't feel any of my scales there. Just my fleshy, exposed skin. Underneath my fingertips, I felt raised, pulsating veins. That's when you got me a mirror. I don't blame you all for recoiling the way you did when you saw me. I was hideous, so much so I even recoiled at my own face. I didn't see the young and vibrant silver dragonborn that I was back then. Instead, I saw a fleshy abomination. All the scales on the left side of my face had fallen away. The bite mark looked infected and was pulsing with pus. 
except the pus was a deep black color, and it wasn't pulsing out, but into me. My eyes went from a crystal blue to a pale, sickly yellow. I tried everything in my arsenal to take care of it, but no amount of healing or blessings would fix it. Finally, before I ended up wasting all my powdered diamond dust on a restoration spell, I asked my god what I should do about it. I remember you used to joke, why didn't I just ask my god every single time I had a question? The truth is, it's actually very hard to commune with the god, and it takes a lot of energy out of a cleric. It's something I could do only after a few years of devotion to Bahamut, and the actual ritual itself takes a lot of time and concentration. It's a lot of work and preparation, only to have him say to you at the end of it, Oh, I don't know, go to sleep maybe? It's rather annoying how cryptic the gods can be. But he was right. After I went to sleep, I awoke the next morning and was fine. Well, I still had two pretty deep puncture wounds that have scarred since, but for the most part, everything went back to normal. How do you feel? Wait, were you writing that down the entire time? Huh? That parchment there. Why are you grinning like that? It worked. What? Never mind. It's a part of the spell. I'm just surprised it worked, honestly. <clears throat> Would you like to see how I handle the second part of all this? There's more. No. Not from you. Don't worry. This was something I kind of put together while you were traveling here. I... I was planning on asking you to share this story anyway, and I put all of this together from some of the notes we had stashed away, so just sit tight and I'll be finished in a moment. Afterwards, we can go grab a drink. Something tells me you and Daisy will probably get along. The Mereji. Well, first off, despite being found in the Raven's Forest, a place known for its abundant undead occupants, this monstrosity that my friend here experienced was a fiend. To be more specific, it was a demon from the Abyss. Now, why was a creature from the Abyss hunting and skulking the woods of our mortal realm, we'll never know, because we never really got the chance to ask the one we met. They stand just under two meters, making them slightly taller than most humanoids. They have stretched gray skin that covers their body, considering they are born and raised in the Abyss, just their very skin is magical and has some special properties that we'll cover in its resistance section. They have large glowing yellow pupils that help aid them in seeing in the pitch of night. Now this is where it gets a bit muddy, and some of this is conjecture put together by me and Cadwin. It has been noted that every Mereji that we've encountered so far, which we have written here as 13, has speaking a mixture of Abyssal and Elvish. I think that the demons took a sect of elves and turned them into monstrosities. Cadwin thinks this happened well before the dawn of man, and... While there's no evidence to support this, I kind of agree with him. It's just weird that the Merezi can speak and understand both Abyssal and Elvish, in person and telepathically. Now, it's no surprise that the one Erythras told us about was speaking multiple other languages, but that lies in its special ability. So, for now, let's cover its weaknesses and resistances. First, being a creature that lives in an alternate plane of existence, especially one as nightmarish as the Abyss, the home of demons, it doesn't surprise me that they are completely resistant to mundane effects. Unlike most creatures we've encountered that have slight magical resistances to normal weaponry, the Mereji also possesses a resistance to almost all elemental attacks, 
It can't be burned, nor can it be frozen, and somehow its skin also acts as a natural conductor. So even calling down a lightning strike on it won't really damage this monster. Last for resistances is its innate ability to shrug off necrotic-based effects. Which I think it's tied to its abilities. How, we don't know. But it is apparent that it has something to do with the undead, and it might explain why this one was in the Raven's Forest. It should be no surprise for a creature that comes from the Abyss that they cannot be charmed, and nor can they be poisoned. And, like a lot of true magical creatures, it has an innate resistance to all magical spells. Attacks and Abilities Wait, what about weaknesses? Well, they don't have any. Then why say it? It's about the cadence of it all. Look, just please. Let's cover the most dramatic one. The one that tricked my old friend here. When the monster consumes the flesh of a humanoid, it starts to absorb its memories. After eating the creature whole, it is able to transform and take the guise of that creature as well. Luckily, these monsters actually aren't that smart. They typically try to use cheap tricks to lure prey into being alone and attacking them. Only when it has an army of ghouls following them will it be brave enough to attack a whole family like it did in the story here. The monster is able to resurrect any ghouls or gas that it sees in its presence. The ghoul will then act and obey the commands of the Mereji. Next is its bites and claws, and while they may seem the same, they are different. The Mereji's claw attack will infect the victim, causing their muscles to tense up and lock in place, paralyzing them until they can shrug its effects off, usually lasting no more than a minute. The bite is the real killer here. The Mereji applies a curse, kind of similar to the mummy. After the creature bites a humanoid, it will inject them with some necrotic abyssal ichor. This ichor will cause the infected to look like they are undead. Usually this doesn't kill most people, because the Merezi would rather eat its prey. But if it bites you enough times, the alterations become permanent. Meaning you won't look like you are undead or dying. You'll just be dead. Well, that brings an end to this entry. Wait, are you saying the thing almost made me so ugly I died? I mean, sure, if you want to put it that way. And hey, I was wondering, actually, you're still not on that quest, are you? Yes, I'm still serving my god. I'll take that as a yes. Look, I'm sorry, after we lost Charles, like really lost him, I wasn't up for leaving the continent. I needed some time to myself. Fifteen years? Look, I know it's no excuse, and I'm sorry. I still wrote, and we never went more than two or three years without seeing each other. I'm sorry. How's it gone? Gotten around to killing anything bigger than the White Fang? I felt bad when you told me you killed those poor baby green dragons. First of all, it's not an excuse, and the only reason we talk so much is because I casted sending to you. And they weren't children. They were the size of a house, Kesvar. They were going to kill us. And you know very well I still have a deed left undone. The wretched blood-red monstrosity still sits sleeping on his throne of slaves. I take it you mean Argonsville? Why are you calling him by his name like he's a friend or something? Do you have stories and statements about him? Actually, anything about the chromatic dragons would be useful. Alright, um... Yeah, we should have plenty. Let's go take a look.
Thank you. If you enjoyed today's episode, please share it with your friends and family and leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. Follow us on Twitter at MonstersOf underscore for all news and teasers for upcoming episodes. Today's episode was read by Alden Thompson, the voice of Erythoras, a young silver dragonborn who was sent from Rakir to hunt down the chromatic dragons in the name of her god Bahamut. But while on that quest, she has ran into and almost died to many more monsters than have been told. The Mirazi was just from one of the many adventures Erythoras has been on. Join me next week as we read a story about the gelatinous cube. Thank you all for listening. Until next time.